everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how are you doing? I'm good. Happy Labor Day. Thank you very much. Same to you. I kind of forgot. Is that bad? No, we're working on Labor Day, which seems counterintuitive, but... It's not really work when you get to talk about soccer, I think. Amen. And it is, it also always confused me growing up. It is called Labor Day and we are laboring <laughs> right now. So that does seem a little bit fitting. I know. I don't know. Um, well, hopefully people are off and they'll get to enjoy hearing us talk about soccer on That's their right. Labor Day. That's right. If you're out there grilling, it's too hot in Arizona really to be outside grilling. Oh. But if you're in most other parts of the United States and you're outside having a good time with your family, hopefully, and staying largely socially distanced, Physically distanced, another term that confuses me with socially distanced. Um, turn on the podcast, <laughs> listen to some soccer talk. You know what? I never thought about that, but that's a good point. Socially distanced, but it's really physically distanced. Yeah, because anyways, yeah, we're not I, I, here we don't to, need talk to get about into that. that. Yeah, you're so right. <laughs> We've got a whole slate of topics for today's show. We're going to go from coaches to players to signings, transfers, game analysis. Let's get started. Jordan, earlier this week, Kevin Thalwell of the New York Red Bulls, he's their head of sport recently coming over from Wolverhampton Wanderers in England, dismissed Chris Armas after a midweek loss to DC United. The Red Bulls finished sixth in the Eastern Conference last year under Armas, and they were seventh in the East this year when Armas was fired. Jordan, were you surprised by this firing? I feel like yes and no in some ways. Yes, because it's not as if under Armas they have a terrible record. His record, 29, 21, and 11 overall in his time as the head coach there at Red Bulls. But this season, it just hasn't seemed to work in New York. Currently, 3, 4, and 2 for the Red Bulls. So that's my yes and no. Like It it seems like what the Red Bulls want to do in their ambitions as the club, it doesn't seem to fit into what is actually happening right now on the field for the Red Bulls. Hmm. Chris Armas, for me, did some good things. And I actually, I think I agree with yeah. you. He did some good things, or at least some adventurous tactical things during his time in charge of the Red Bulls. I mean, I think back to when he first took over for Jesse Marsh. Chris Armas almost immediately placed a little bit more emphasis on possession. Then at times, he had the Red Bulls looking like they could either press you to death, which is what they were doing under Jesse Marsh, and they were doing it very, very well, mm-hmm. or they could possess the ball and score goals that way. And that wasn't something we'd really seen before Chris Armas took over. And then he also gave them some added defensive versatility and emphasized a lower defensive block a little bit more often than Jesse Marsh did. But the downside to that is sometimes that block allowed teams to pin them back like Atlanta United did in that 3-0 win, I think it was in 2018, in that playoff game in Atlanta. Atlanta just pummeled them in that low block. And and so I appreciate some of the tactical tinkering that Mm -hmm. Armas did. But I also think that his, his tenure illustrates how hard it is to combine and add different parts of different identities to an already existing identity. That's the thing that sticks out the biggest to me is everybody was so clued into who the Red Bulls were, right? They, you're playing against a team who's going to high press you and this is who they are. This is their identity. And it seemed like drifting away from that felt like you were really drifting away from who the club was at its core. And so I think that that little mixture of, and I would agree with you, and I like the word tactical tinkering. I like those words. That made me smile. (laughs) I think that there were things that were okay in that, but just when it was so drastically different to the identity of the club or who they 
they had built themselves on in their heyday, it seemed like it just wasn't going to work. Well, and to be honest, back when Armas took over and he was emphasizing more possession, I thought that was a good thing. Because I was yeah. wondering, is it possible in Major League Soccer or, or anywhere to win to do both? to win titles by just pressing? Yeah. I'm not sure. And I'm still not sure about that. Um, I mean, RB Salzburg have done it in the Austrian Bundesliga, but I think there's a big quality you know, difference there between Salzburg and the rest of the league. I was wondering at that time when Armas took charge, is it possible for a team to go and just press a team to death over and over and over again? And so I thought maybe adding the possession in would give them another change of pace and would allow them to to overcome teams that just took the pressing system and countered it by sitting back in a low defensive block and forced the Red Bulls to break them down. And uh-huh. at times it did work. But then again, we saw over and over again as the season went on. I mean, against DC United in this past midweek game that resulted in Armas getting fired, Red Bulls had the majority of the possession and they couldn't ultimately break through. So even that little tweak wasn't consistent enough to get the Red Bulls breaking down low blocks to make them this well-rounded juggernaut. Yeah, that's a good point. One more thing on this. I think the coach is the easiest thing to ditch when your club is struggling. Mm -hmm. I mean, Red Bulls have much bigger issues than Chris Armas, like an overall lack of talent in the first team and a kind of stalled youth pipeline in the New York, New Jersey kind of area. There are systemic issues here that go deeper than Chris Armas. And I think it's easy to say the players in and the players out are a result of the coach and coach's decisions, but it's not always that, right? It's a collective group who are making those decisions because you look at a player like BWP who finds a new home in LAFC and uh, the struggles of LAFC are going to be tabled a little bit for this talk, <laughs> but... Uh, but he he's still scoring goals, right? And he's still showing that he can be a player who can be effective in the attack. And that's just someone that Red Bulls let go on a free. They just don't. The Red Bulls don't have the talent that they need to be a top contender in the Eastern Conference. I mean, right now, let's take the Columbus crew. They have a, a midfield metronome who's one of the best central midfielders in the league and, and one of the best central midfielders in the Americas in Darlington Nagby. They have Lucas Zelarayan a game-changing number 10 that Kaku hasn't been for the Red Bulls. They have Jossie Zardes, who's a goal scorer. BWP was that for the Red Bulls, but now he's Mm -hmm. gone. I mean, the Red Bulls' best, most consistent attacking talents are Florian Velo, a guy coming off of major knee injuries repeatedly, and Daniel Royer on the other side, who's always been, I think, a slightly above-average MLS attacker. And then Kaku in the middle, who's been inconsistent even in terms of minutes. The talent there from top to bottom for the Red Bulls just isn't there right now. And the spine of the team, you got to go back too. And the two center backs are just not performing at the levels that we've seen these center backs for the Red Bulls perform in previous years. So you talk about just the spine of the team and you can upgrade in various places there or get more out of the players that you already have. And, and maybe that is where this coaching, uh, issue comes, right? Is you're not getting the most out of the players that you have as well. Where do you go if you're looking for a coach? Are you looking for someone oh, already like in the Red Bull system who's been exposed to some of the philosophy from Ralph Rangnick? Or are you looking for fresh blood to try to really hit the reset button on this club? That's a good question and one that I'm very happy that I don't really have to answer. We'll leave that for Kevin uh, Thelwell then. Yeah, because I, I don't I don't know. Do you stick with the identity that you've created over the last few years and the drifting away from it make makes you feel like, okay, let's get back to it? Or do you try to start anew and be a fresh look at with 
what you have right now and try to get the most out of your players. So is it a coach that is a little bit more, at least in the interim, inspirational to get the most out of the players right now? Whew. Those are that's a reason why I'm I'm happy I'm not in those positions. Yeah, we'll leave that to the executives to okay. to figure out on their own. <laughs> uh, another team that is potentially hitting a little bit of the reset button or just a small reset button is Atlanta United with Pitti Martinez potentially moving on. The Athletics Felipe Cardenas reported last week that Atlanta United are close to selling Martinez for around 18 million dollars. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah, I think wow is perfect there. For what Petit was expected to do coming into MLS, the amount of money that they paid for him to see what he has and hasn't done, to then go and sell him for more money and gain off of it, I think you have to sell him. You have to get that financial gain there because he just hasn't fit in with what Atlanta has been in the last year. And that's what I want to I wanna really get at with this discussion of Pitti Martinez, why wasn't he the best player in Major League Soccer while he was here? Because coming from South America, I mean, man, the number of times I've heard this in my ears, he's South American <laughs> Player of the Year. I don't know if anyone had heard that stat before. Oh, that little, he was? That little tidbit. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with that little piece oh of information, Jordan. No, so I was. <laughs> he was He was coming in with a pedigree, at least in, in terms of that yeah. award, coming from River Plate, who... Totally. I mean, Atlanta paid a reported $14 million for him back in January of 2019 from River Plate. He was expected to be the guy in Major League Soccer or one of the guys alongside Ibrahimovic and Carlos Vela uh-huh. at the very least. Uh-huh. So so then why wasn't he what we thought he was going to be, Jordan? Well, therein lies the question everybody wants answered. In my opinion, it's a combination of things. If you're watching Atlanta United in 2018, whew, I think everybody would raise their hand and say, I want to play for that team, that organization. I want to be inside Mercedes-Benz arena with, is it arena or stadium? I, I think, think it's, it's stadium. stadium. Yeah. <laughs> arena is usually basketball. That's I'm true. Switch, switching up my sports. Mercedes-Benz stadium with that atmosphere. All the things about Atlanta make you as a player want to be a part of it. And the one thing that really drove them as a team was Tata Martino. And for me, if you don't have Tata, it really changed who that club was, at least on the pitch. And so I think it was difficult for Pitti Martinez because his expectations, one, externally were high. He, like you said, was South American Player of the Year, and we've all heard that so many times. But this is the talent that this player has and brought in the expectations to come into a new league and be the best of the best right away. As opposed to Joseph Martinez, who came in and was like, oh, this guy's pretty good. He's playing in Italy, but like, we don't know. Then he could exceed expectations. Well, the expectations were already super high for Pitti Martinez. So you, you couple that with then totally changing systems and style of play and coaches and feel of the team. I just think it was difficult for him to get his footing and to be able to play like the player he wanted to be or he had been with a totally different style of play. I'd mold over this question, the question I just asked you a minute or so ago throughout the week after this news broke from from the Athletics Felipe Cardenas. And the first thing I could think of for why Martinez wasn't the player we we kind of thought he was going to be is just the general unrest in Atlanta under mm. Frank DeBoer. And that transition from Tata Martino to Frank DeBoer not going smoothly at all 
and, yeah. and not turning out to be the right decision now that Frank DeBoer even is gone. It wasn't stable. The club wasn't stable. The on-field tactics, the on-field tactics weren't stable either. And so that made it difficult for Martinez to come in with those astronomically high expectations that you just talked about, Jordan, and come into that team and everyone expecting him to be the guy when Atlanta couldn't even quite figure out how they were playing and the players and the coach couldn't get on the same page. That, I mean, that discrepancy makes it really difficult to go out there and perform at the level that people are are watching and waiting for. With that being said, there are glimpses of Pitti Martinez where we were like, man, this guy's good. Like two weeks ago or something like that. Maybe it was last <laughs> week. I don't even remember. Right. But I think if for Atlanta, if you can get money off of a player that you bought for $14 million, I think you have to sell him. And, and it kind of stinks, right? Because you said there are there has been some unrest and there is a turnover. Frank DeBoer is out. Who is the team going to be after this 2020 season? I think that's where we're, they're probably looking to sign a new coach is after this season. Would he fit in that? Would he be a big maybe reason why they picked a certain coach to try to fit in with the style of play and the players that they have? Yes, but you are also giving a new coach the ability to build the team that he wants to build. And I think that's interesting as well. The timeline of when Atlanta is going to bring in the next DP, the guy replacing Pitti Martinez, potentially sell Ezekiel Barco as well. Mm -hmm. Then there's Mm -hmm. another DP slot open. And when they're going to hire their new manager, the new full-time manager after we would assume Steven Glass will go back to take over Atlanta United too. That timeline's interesting to me because I think there's a lot of room for error I, yeah. I don't think going out and signing one, potentially two, if Barco gets sold sooner rather than later, bringing in those players before the next coach comes in is not, I don't yeah. think that's a good idea because then you Me run either. into a real stylistic differences. What if you bring in Pitti Martinez, but the new coach wants to play with a Miguel Almiron type number 10 who can mm-hmm. actually run and, and dictate possession and doesn't need to be the guy a little bit more floating around in possession with more freedom of movement like Pitti Martinez was in contrast with Almiron. Those You have to get that right. You have to get that yeah. order right. And unfortunately for Atlanta, number one, I don't think they're going to get it right. And number two, it does seem like if you do want to get it right and bring in the coach first before the players, you're going to have to wait till next season. Yeah. And the timeline there is difficult. You got to really bite the bullet and say, OK, we're going to wait and be patient and really work with what we have this season. Or we're going to be a little bit more impatient and bring in the players now and hope that we can find a coach that really likes what we're working with. And that's not yeah. that's not an easy decision to make. Yeah, I think it's the the coach first before DPs. That's and the patience is going to be difficult because that timeline actually is is going to be quick to sign a new coach and to sign DPs in that transfer window in January, which I'm assuming is still going to be the transfer window. I don't know <laughs> if we really know or not, but it, it'll be a quick timeline if that's the the route that they go, which I think is the smartest route. But you might have to even be patient in how you build and bring in your DPs if those two get sold. So I don't know. Wow. Yeah, that it's makes crazy. two of us. And the, and just to clarify, the reason why I say I don't think Atlanta is going to get it right is because Darren Eels has said they're looking for a designated player to replace Pitti Martinez in this transfer window. So that's not me being overly pessimistic. That's just me reading the very, you know, the tea leaves that are written in very big font. So it all that also speaks a lot to who Atlanta is as a club and their pursuit of winning now yeah you know it's it isn't a long game for them and it hasn't been since they have come into the league they said we're going to build this team we're going to win as soon as possible which is not what we see from different teams throughout mls right so 
that statement right there makes me show that they are not changing really their the core of who they are, which is, okay, let's bring somebody in so we can get on track and win this season. Yeah, I'm with you. One high-profile attacking player going out in Pitu Martinez, one came in this week or, or maybe at the tail end of last week, and that's Emmanuel Reynoso, 24 years old, signed from Boca Juniors and will be a designated player for Minnesota United. This is big for Minnesota, Jordan. Yeah, it was like they were dating him for a long time. <laughs> and we had heard about it all the way back in, gosh, January, February. Yeah. And it was like the courting process, really trying to lure him in to be their boyfriend. And they they made it. They, they made it <laughs> official. And I think it's a great signing for them. Huge signing, really. I love the analogy. And I like the signing as well. He He doesn't have great stats from his time with Boca Juniors. I'm going to run through some of them here. 66 appearances, five goals, eight assists. That's not that's not great. And mm-hmm. to be fair to him, he spent some time out wide, some time as a number 10, which I think is where he'll be for Minnesota United. And we'll get into that more in just a second. And so goals and assists don't always give the most well-rounded view of a player. Um, but I looked at his underlying stats too, and those aren't great either. So take all of this conversation with a grain of salt because the numbers don't love him. But from the footage that I've watched, he brings some pretty important skills to the table. And so I I do like the signing overall, at least for the eye test. Okay, should we get to the things that we've noticed about him? Let's do it. And for me, it's really what I've seen in these first couple games with him being with Minnesota. So for you, you said he brings some special qualities. What are the things that you've recognized in his game? Yeah, so a quick profile, I guess, of Reynoso from what I've seen. He's left-footed. He's very left-footed. He has a right foot. I mean, it's it's on his leg, and he can use it at times. <laughs> but he prefers his left foot and, and using the left foot to receive the ball and the left foot to make passes, even if that's an occasional outside-of-the-foot pass with his left foot. He's very composed on the ball. I don't know if you notice this, Jordan, but when he plays, he looks like he's in total control. He's calm. Uh-huh. He's collected. He makes soccer look easy. He's one of those guys. that almost makes me angry to watch because... I can't do that. And when I play soccer, it very much does not look like that. But I love I also love watching those guys because they make the sport so, so, so beautiful in a way. So I don't, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that as well. And then also really good close control. He keeps possession well in tight spaces. He can work the ball out of difficult areas and then progress attacks from there. So that's my my three pronged quick overview analysis of Reynoso for Minnesota. Yeah, the things that I've noticed to in his positioning that all that speaks to those things that you were saying is he really likes to float in between the lines and he plays in the correct seam when he is passing the ball. So his ability to flow, I think a lot of the time he likes players in close proximity to him so he can connect and he can play little one twos or little combinations to then play a, a, a slip ball through. So, he thrives in that those spaces where maybe it is a little bit more tight. There are some numbers, but his close control helps him get out of those situations. So what I was, I've been most impressed with is just his ability to play the correct seam. And he knows, say he's, he's turned and faced the back line and he has a runner on the outside. Say it's Robin Lud who is with the outside back and he's pressing the back line, trying to break through. Reynoso knows if the space is in the seam between the center back and the outside back and to play Lud through or to play him 
in front of the outside back to his feet and to keep possession in front of the back line, depending on where their numbers are. Maybe there's an overlap that he's trying to see develop. So that ability to play the right seam helps Minnesota be a team who can get more numbers forward. And depending on where he plays, it can add more numbers to the attack. So I really, I think he is very interesting and fits in this Minnesota squad uh, pretty seamlessly. Uh, seem seamlessly. I don't know if that was oh. intentional. Oh, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, I want to I go so more funny. into that. Yeah, you're, so, you're very punny, Jordan. I want to go more into that that ability to pick the correct seam because I I want to understand how that works a little bit better. So when he's on the ball or when when you're on the ball, Jordan, how do you tell if you should play the ball to feet? If, if we're imagining just an isolated part of the field. So let's say it's Reynoso on the ball, load out on the right wing, and then there's mm-hmm. an outside back close to him. Um, for the opposing team. So that'd be the opposing left back who's out in Lode's area. How do you tell whether you should have Lode check back to the ball and play it to his feet or whether you should slip the ball either outside that fullback or inside in between the into the channel between the fullback and the center back? There are so this is a hard thing to pinpoint because there are so many external factors that make that decision the correct decision. And I think this is why soccer is so intricate and it's so beautiful is because imagine then on the outside back, you have Metzner who is running full pace beyond Robin Ludd, right? Well, maybe you don't slip the seam because then that ball brings Ludd inside too much. And when you really want to bring in Metzner and then Ludd can curve his run inside and get into the box for that run of Metanair who's overlapping. So that in that case, you play Lud's feet and then you bring in Metanair with that next pass, hmm. right? Yeah. But if Metanair is not going, if if out of the peripheral vision, Reynoso doesn't see that, and maybe he sees a run from Mason Toy centrally in front of him, maybe slightly to his left, but in front of him... He slips Lud through the seam because then with that slip ball, Toy can also advance his position and maybe there is one, a chance for Lud to shoot on goal or to cross it in advance of Mason Toy who can then run onto it and score. So it's tactically, it's so interesting because there are so many things as a player that you're observing at one time to make one little decision. And that decision is the correct seam to play in. And I feel like well, from what I've seen from Reynoso, and it's not going to be perfect every single time, but his wherewithal of what's going on around him allows him to make the correct decision. So it's very situational, depending, situational. On, depending on what's Absolutely. happening in your area of the field and all the different contextual factors that go into yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So back to Reynoso, after I've sidetracked okay. us into the nitty gritty mental state of soccer players. Um, <laughs> I like Reynoso's ability to fit in with how Adrian Heath wants to play. Yeah. He can he can elevate their game in transition. He can carry the ball forward, draw defenders in, and then either play a ball over the top to a forward or he can dribble forward, then combine. You talked about that already, Jordan. He likes to have players near him to combine with. And then he can keep the forward momentum after he lays the ball off or passes the ball off to a teammate. He'll continue his run, get forward, and get into dangerous areas in the attacking third to either take a shot or to find a key pass in and around the box. And that's all in transition. That's not Mm -hmm. even talking about how he's going to elevate their possession game uh, with a little two-man game between him and Kevin Molina, which I think might be my favorite thing from this week in general, tactically. Can we just go into that? Because my tactical tidbit is from this game, and I I loved this. Perfect. Go for it. We're we're bringing the tactical tidbits up in the show this week. Yeah, because it it fits with Reynoso and how 
Minnesota United are are playing and so they're they're setting up the same way in a 4-2-3-1 but what I noticed differently is the the wingers are playing very central hmm. really inverted and, and I wrote in my notes were they playing as pocket wingers I don't even know if you can call them pocket wingers because especially Molina was so inside it was almost like a little diamond between uh Lud. Molino, Toy, and Reynosa, right? Reynoso. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what kind of diamond you call that, but it was like really stre- <laughs> a really stretched one. Yeah, um, it was pretty. And and the reason I like this, and the reason I think it fits with Minnesota, is because they have two outside backs who love getting forward. Mm-hmm. They love it, and they have the ability to get forward because the two holding midfielders and for Minnesota, and it, it switched up because. There was an injury mid-game, but you have Grey Goose and you had, for most of the game, uh, Hassani Dotson. And so those two are pretty good at just holding and, and being okay and content with holding. But then beyond them, you have Aha and Boxel, who have been impressive this season. Is that fair to say? That's fair. It's very fair. And I think there's a lot of speculation as what was going to happen with Opara gone. But those two have been consistent. So with those wingers inverted into pocket wingers or like really close, a really close diamond there. You create the combination plays that Reynoso is good at, but you also give the outside backs freedom to get forward. And this was happening a lot in the first half, playing centrally, springing in Gasper or Metanere on the wings and the channels. And it is exactly how Minnesota scored their first goal in the second half is because they had all their players centrally switch the point of attack. And there goes Chase Gasper, uh, scoring his first MLS goal because he had all of the time and space because the outside backs of RSL are pinched in trying to figure out how to defend the wingers. And when that happens, you give the space to the outside backs running forward. Reynoso. I loved it. Oh, I loved it too. Isn't that Reynoso's assist on that pass? Yes. Or is that a different goal later in the game? Uh, Doesn't matter. Oof. That's all right. Yeah. I think it is. Cause I think, yeah, it goes centrally and then he slips it wide. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, I just never doubt. I don't know at all. Nah, whatever. A simple Google, like a simple <laughs> search, could solve this problem. But no, we'll save that for a listener. It's hard to remember there was four goals. So it's, who, that's right. Who Minnesota, just who? be happy. Just be happy you guys scored so many goals. Reynoso, I I really do believe is going to be a good signing as long as Adrian Heath continues to stay with his largely defense first, then counterattack style. Because I do think that's worked really, really well for Minnesota United. They become very good at quickly exploiting space and transition. Mm-hmm. And and Minnesota only use this varied possession scheme that you just broke down really well. They only use it when the opposing team is countering that by sitting deep themselves. And and that's going to happen. That's happened before. And so adding a player who can change that up and add positive elements in possession to combine with players and allow the fullbacks to get forward, all of those things, those are positives. But as long as I think Adrian Heath sticks within the core identity of this club, I mean, we led this, this show with conversation about the Red Bulls and how it can be dangerous to deviate too much from your basic identity. If Minnesota can stick with that, this is going to be a home run signing. From what I've seen so far, granted, it is a very small sample size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it it reminded me, too, of in transition, Reynoso is is their outlet player. Mm-hmm. He The number of times where they're transitioning from defense to offense and they find him in space in, in the midfield was, man, I could I, I lost count. But one of the things I think it will be interesting is just the defensive responsibilities of him and how that evolves or how that is put into uh, play in Minnesota because he is 
good at finding and being that outlet player, how much work are you going to ask of him defensively? We'll see. Yeah. Okay, on to our first actual game analysis of the weekend. Well, that RSL Minnesota analysis, Jordan. That We'll call that number one. Our second analysis okay. of the weekend. The Houston Dynamo's 2-1 win over Sporting Kansas City right off the bat. My first note from this game was it's kind of fun to watch two teams try to break each other down with the ball. We don't get to see that a whole lot, and I really liked that. And two teams named SKC and Houston. <laughs> Before the year, I don't know if we... Actually, I think we did anticipate this because of Todd Ramos, but to see how quickly he's changed this team mm. and created an identity within them, I think it's really cool to see. It's impressive, right? They've yeah. been on a great run in terms of results, and they're playing good soccer. I mean, they came into this game, and they were willing to pass the ball out from the back. They are willing to pass the ball through midfield and have some different rotations with their central midfielders pushing Memo Rodriguez up almost in line with the striker at times, and that happened midweek as well in their game uh, Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever it was. Memo Rodriguez likes to step high and become a playmaker higher up the field, which are tendencies that we noticed from him way back in Orlando. That wasn't even mm-hmm. that long ago. But a couple months ago in Orlando, Tab Ramos has this Houston Dynamo team doing good things. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. The one thing I, I hadn't written down in the 18th minute, 18th minute, it was the first time I really saw Sporting Kansas City recognize an opportunity to, I said, full court press. Hmm. And it, I guess I'm really into the basketball <laughs> things right now. I, I mentioned it earlier too with Arena. But anyways, they, they full court press. And I am thoroughly impressed with Houston's willingness to play out of the back. And a lot of that has to do with Quintero uh, coming centrally, being the target player uh, on the right side. It, this was on the right side of the t- attack. And for Houston, there was a wrong pass in the end from the, the outlet from Quintero, but just their willingness to notice that SKC is high pressing and saying, all right, we are not just going to send it long. We are not just going to relieve this pressure. We're going to try to play out of it. I was intrigued by that. And I think that they did a really good job of it in certain moments in the game. And it's hard to break down, right? When a team is full full court pressing you, it is hard to stay patient and to stay comfortable in that situation. I thought Houston did a good job of managing those moments. Absolutely. And then when they worked the ball higher up the field, the attacking talent that they have on this squad is very impressive. I mean, Memo Rodriguez, I said his name already. Albert Elise came off the bench in this game. Darwin Quintero started as a left winger, sometimes on the right side as well, sometimes in central midfield. That's Darwin Quintero. Mm-hmm. Marmanotas on the bench. Christian, it was Ramirez who started, I believe, as that number nine. Then they bring Lasseter off the bench, who scored multiple goals in the middle of the week and came off and impacted this game as well. They have guys, that's not even everyone who, who's played for the Dynamo over the last couple of weeks. They have guys who can cause problems in the attack, especially against the Sporting Kansas City team that struggled a little bit defensively. I mean, in this game, the Dynamo get their two goals from smart crosses in the half spaces. It's it's crosses whipped in from those channels, not the outside channels, but the next ones in. They cross the ball in, and they were smart crosses. And they play the ball into the box, a looping ball into the box, and they get goals from those moments. The Dynamo's ability to get forward in transition, to build out from the back, to switch the point of attack from side to side, from one dangerous winger to another, all of those things are making Tab Ramos' team very hard to stop right now. Yeah, I, I think that's a good breakdown. And just the... I liked the fluidity of Houston's front 
few players and then bringing in players like Elise, who you know you're going to get of him on the right wing of Manotas and how he can be a good, strong, central uh, number nine player. So it's like they started with variety and a little bit of some players that can float in. You talk about Quintero being that player, but then they bring in some players that are just like, okay, this is, I know that they can do this, but you're playing against a SKC side who had some changes in the back line and they were just like, all right, we're going for it. We're going to bring in the big guns. I will say the Dynamo scored more goals than Sporting Kansas City and they had nice goals. But SKC's goal was my favorite goal, not just from this game, but from the entire weekend. And so I'm hoping, Jordan, that you'll indulge me to talk about it. Oh, I would love to because it was chef's kiss. It was nice. It was. So it's an 11-pass sequence. It starts on the far side of the field, eventually works its way around to the right side of the field, then back to the left again, and then back to the right when the ball's in the box. It's from back to front. And they draw Houston's press forward. That's the key to this game. That's the key to this this goal, rather. They draw mm-hmm. the press forward and play into the space that's left when you draw a press forward. So the, the front three and even the midfield three are all sucked forward as Sporting Kansas City are playing with the ball in the back. Those six players are higher up the field, and that leaves a big gap between the midfield three and the back four for the Houston Dynamo. Mm-hmm. It leaves that back four as well with a decision of as Sporting Kansas City are attacking forward, do they step high and try to stop the play there and leave themselves vulnerable to a run in behind? Or do they drop and allow that massive space between their lines in front of the back line? The Dynamo decide to drop, and that allows Sporting Kansas City's number nine to get on the ball, turn, switch the point of attack. Sporting Kansas City at that point are off to the races. It's a beautiful slipped pass into the box from Gaddy Kinda, who I love, by the way. Yeah. And it gets the ball into the box. Hurtado eventually scores. I love Kinda. Like I said, I love Sporting Kansas City in this goal specifically. Yeah. I'd just say, uh, you didn't say Eric Hurtado, Santa Clara University alum. I just had to add that in I'm there. I'm so sorry. That was to, a complete yeah. oversight on my part. <laughs> Eric Hurtado, Santa Clara University alum, scores that goal. Um, I just have to give him a shout out. He was there <laughs> when I was there as well. So I just, you got you to gotta give your respect when you can. Of course. Uh, I, do, I do love Kinda. And one of the things that I think is important when you're talking and describing how this goal happens is we discuss a lot of the times about teams that are possession style teams and how they want to not only dictate who they are with the ball, but also who the defense is that you can manipulate the numbers on your, on your part to also change how the defense is structured. And that's a really good example of that, right? Because you put Houston in this space of uh, because of the way that sporting Kansas city possessed and they moved the ball, they forced Houston to make a decision. And from that decision, they then countered it with the correct decision into which gap to play in or how to break down this Houston defense. And I think it was really interesting to see that play out. Jordan, let's talk John Luca Busio okay. at the number six position. We've mentioned him at the end of a show before playing this new role, stepping back a little bit from a number eight and stepping back a little bit from the different, you know, almost innumerable roles he's played with the USU 17s to this point in his career. Now he's a six as Ilya Sanchez is not currently playing games, he stepped into that number six role as a central defensive midfielder. You watched him closely in this game. I watched him mm-hmm. closely too, but I think you really dug into what he was doing and what he does well and not so well. Hit me with yeah, it. Have, what did you think of John Lucabusio? I have a half page of notes, so I think I really did key into him. <laughs> um, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time we spoke about him, you had mentioned that he doesn't check his shoulder enough. 
uh, it doesn't check his shoulder enough or more specifically at the right times. That's what I noticed. It's not enough. That's half of my notes is just on that in particular. I said, I don't think he checks his shoulder enough. He isn't aware of how his movement or lack thereof can hurt his team. Hmm. So when you're playing that six, especially in the way that Peter Vermees wants to play in the 4-3-3, where it's a lone holding midfielder, your responsibility is to cut off the passing lanes from the back line or the midfield into the front runners. And especially into the front runners in behind you or in front of the center back. So you're shielding those passing lanes. If you aren't checking your shoulders, your lack of movement is then hurting your team because the slip ball or, or the ball that breaks a number of lines can go right past you into the front runner. And then your whole team is turned and scrambling to get into back into position. If you check your shoulder, if John Luca Busio checks his shoulder here in situations like this, he'll notice that the runner up front is right to his left. He shifts over a couple of yards and then that pass doesn't happen. Houston has to keep possession and they work it around and you're just shifting then side to side, right? That's a lot easier than having to turn, change your body positioning and run back towards your goal. And the one that was like the biggest thing that I noticed. So talking about this goal against the first goal against and Busio is in that sixth spot. Hernandez is defending Quintero, who is dribbling across. And actually, Busio is in an OK spot because he's denying the, the pass into the front runners. But what happens is Quintero plays the ball wide. And I have a, a problem with Busio's lack of reaction after the ball gets sent wide. He he really just stands there. And the two Houston attackers are now rerouting their runs centrally, circling to get themselves into a position where they can score. One of them being Elise and who ends up scoring the goal. And I'm not saying that Busio should have been tracking Elise, but if he... As the ball gets pushed wide, he tends to then follow the ball with everything. His eyes, his body, everything goes towards the ball. So as he's watching the ball, the runs happen beyond him, and he's too late to react to what's going on. And this is happening over and over again. So it's not only his lack of movement after the ball gets played, but it's watching the ball. So he gets one toot a lot and you can't get one toot if you're that player in the sixth position. So defensively, I think there are things that he has to key in on as to if he changes those things, if he's just willing to, when the ball gets passed, drop back and not watch the ball and get one toot. That's a quick thing that you can adjust mm-hmm. and you can get a lot better really easily. Um, and just check your shoulder. Defensively, I think those are the two big things that I see consistently that if he's going to be the six, which I think he could be really good at, he is comfortable under pressure when he has the ball. He can find open players. He has a good passing range. There are qualities that he has in attack that really speak to being that position in the lone six. But defensively, man, he has to key in on those weaknesses. And that's perfect because we're not we're not just ripping a teenage no. soccer player right now. We're trying to provide points for our listeners to see, to watch Busio and see how he progresses in this new position for him and see how he develops totally. from, from this time or a few weeks ago to maybe next season or the end of this season at least and have this be a starting point for, for us to be able to watch his progress over time. I, and so it's perfect. I kind of like him in that spot. I think he would be even better in a double pivot. Hmm. 
What makes you because, say that? Because he would have the ability to mix, become like a six eight, hmm. so he could he could play those balls where he he is lying a little bit deeper and has space to play in front of him and can put a ball on a rope to the far side, which he does so well. But he can also press forward and play a little bit higher up the field because I think you do hinder his creativity a little bit by playing him at that six. Fair. That's very fair. One more uh, piece of feedback for Gianluca Busio before we move on to our next game from the weekend. Stop taking quite so many shots from distance. Uh, <laughs> you cannot go a game, almost you can't even go a half without seeing Busio take one from, I don't know, 25 yards out. And it's just, the odds of scoring from there are so low. I know I sound like a nerd right now, and I don't care. The odds of scoring from that position are really, really low. Every once in a while, sure, that's fine. Not even really then, in my opinion. But still, it's too much. And that's what all I'm going to say. Odds? Give us the odds. It depends on where like, you are, though. Go into the real nerd alert. Uh, we will need American Soccer Analysis okay. on to provide you with specific expected goal <laughs> value. But it's low, and it's lower. Yeah. It's a lot lower than it would be if he helps progress the ball forward in the attacking third. So, yeah. I said my piece. Jordan, on to our second and final game of the weekend to break down. This is San Jose and Colorado Rapids playing to a 1-1 draw. This is funny to me. This game ends tied 1-1 with a goal from Chris Wondolowski and a header, <laughs> a headed goal from Kai Kamara. I mean, what else did we expect? What did we expect from this one, Jordan? I mean, the two be- two of the best goal scorers ever to play in MLS to score the goals. I, I, I And... Actually, a switch of roles for them where Wando gets the start and Kai Kamara comes Mm. off the bench where they've actually been playing mostly in the opposite way where Wando comes off the bench and Kamara starts. So, man, there are some interesting things in this one. I am really trying to embrace this Matias Almeida style of play. And... Sometimes it just, I really just don't understand. I feel like one week I watch the the earthquakes and I think this is genius. And I can totally understand why this works every time. And I'm super positive about it. And then the next week, I mean, they get torn apart by LAFC 5-1. to And they draw this game 1-1 with the Colorado Rapids. I, I'm far more down on it. And it's difficult with players rotating in and out of the lineup. I get it. Game's congested. It's hard to run that much. But it's so interesting to me how one week it's almost... Perfect. And the next week, Uh it's a total disaster. And it wasn't a disaster in this game necessarily, but it's a very highs and lows kind of tactical style. And I find myself falling into those highs and lows as I watch this team. I actually feel like they're one of the teams that are going to hurt the most for from all these games that are happening in quick succession, because when they do have to make changes to their starting 11, defensively, they're all right. But when they attack, I think you and I have spoke about how when San Jose has the ball and they're attacking, they, they're a pretty fun team to watch. Mm-hmm. They have fluidity in their movement. Jackson Newell, Judson can dictate the, the pace centrally. Uh, they have Nick Lima who gets forward. Uh, Tommy Thompson. The players that they have have a real spark and energy going forward. But when you change that up, the thing that is difficult is those connections are off. And so you're not as fun of a team going forward. So then defensively, you're doing all this work and then you you want to have those connections be right. But it takes time to build those. For me, the eye-catching attacking play was not from the San Jose Earthquakes in this game. It was from Colorado and how they were trying to break down 
the Earthquake's defensive structure because that I do always enjoy, watching against mm-hmm. Earthquake, seeing how teams try to solve the puzzle. Yeah. I, I almost feel like everyone should have figured out how to solve it by now. And it shouldn't be as difficult as it is, but that's credit to Mateus Almeida and how he's structured this Earthquake's man-marking system. Mm-hmm. But we know what San Jose do. I want to look at how the Rapids were able to get a goal. I mean, it came off a set piece, yes, but were able to to create something in the attack in this game. How did they try to break through the man-marking scheme? And for me, it all started with Diego Rubio as the number nine in that 4-3-3. Well, I was going to say it starts with Will Yarbrough. Oh, Perfect. Because those are the two players that it really started with, right? I was going to say, we couldn't be more polar opposites, but they do really connect. Those two points do (laughs) connect. So often, I'm going to start with mine first. So often, Rubio was dropping super deep from his number nine spot, which is something he's comfortable doing. He would drop really deep to pull Alanis, one of the Earthquake center backs, with him. He would pull Alanis out of the center of the Earthquake's back line, and then that creates space for someone to run up the gut. Oftentimes, that was Kellen Acosta. The pattern mm-hmm. that I noticed was Rubio drops, Alanis follows him, Acosta makes the run from central midfield as one of the eights in a 4-3-3. Acosta makes the run up the gut, and then Cole Bassett, the other central midfielder in the 4-3-3, the other eight in that 4-3-3, mm-hmm. would also be high up the field, and Bassett would be ready for the square ball from Acosta. So the pattern looked like Rubio dropping, and then Acosta stepping high, and Bassett already starting high. And that allowed the Rapids to have almost a 2v1 versus that leftover center back in the middle of the Earthquake's back line. And they would just try to attack down that channel with direct vertical runs, moving defenders out of the way and playing into that space. I liked the combination. Yeah, I really did too. I thought Kellen Acosta was the best player on the field for the Rapids in in this game. And his ability to solve those situations, I think, really spoke to that exactly. Why I said Will Yarbrough is because you don't see the Colorado Rapids a lot playing their goal kicks long. They want to play out of the back. They're pretty comfortable playing out of the back. A lot of teams are in MLS right now. But one of the things that I noticed is Will Yarbrough would get the ball. Colin Warner, who gets his first start as a a Rapid and played really well in that defensive holding midfield spot. Colin Warner and Kellen Acosta would check to right outside, right in between the outside backs and the center backs, and they would pull their their markers with them. So then I would I called it Route 101. I had that written <laughs> in my I mean, if if you know San Jose at all, you're right by 101. So That's this clever. was Yarbrough to Rubio every single time. So Rubio would check off the line, as you just mentioned. Acosta and Warner had pulled their players out. So once the ball went to Rubio, he had options. He could either then play one of those players who's then coming underneath him with like a chest pass or a little head dink back, or he could flick it on to Shinyashiki or Bassett who are pushing the line right behind him, trying to get into that space. So that's typically what happened off of uh, goal kicks, which was super interesting to me. And I, I thought that Diego Rubio did a good job of being that target forward. I also think that when they were building up, and this is where I saw more Acosta running in behind, is you could sense that we've talked about how San Jose man-to-man marks and they leave one of the center backs for the opposing team open. So what happens, Joe, is that center back has the free reign to go dribble or create going forward, right? Which I love, by the way. And San Jose was baiting Lala Sabubakar to be the player who was dribbling or creating going forward. So they 
They would put their forward on Danny Wilson, who has a stellar left foot, can switch the point of attack. They didn't want him playing out. They wanted that to be Lalas Abubakar, who is really up and down in his distribution going forward. But Rubio's movement and the movement of those two other midfielders in Warner and Acosta in those moments allowed it to be super easy for Abubakar, right? He didn't have to dribble out. He could just play Rubio, who's checking off the line, and then Warner could get the drop pass and Acosta was going through. So that little up, back, and through was on all the time for the Rapids. And it felt like they solved this man-marking system pretty easily. And I think they should, they probably should have had a couple more goals. I agree with both of those statements, that they they could have or even should have created more goal-scoring chances and that they've provided a little bit of a blueprint for Mm -hmm. how to beat this. But it's also not a new blueprint. I think back to the beginning of last season, the Red Bulls, I remember very specifically, the Red Bulls and LAFC took a blowtorch to Mateus Almeida's San Jose Earthquakes at the (laughs) start of that season, his very, very first few games in MLS. And they did that, specifically the Red Bulls, I remember by dropping Bradley Wright Phillips back and then playing into that space that is created by having that center back out of position or or Mm -hmm. doing his job in the man marking system, but there's a, a vacant space behind him. More teams need to do that. More teams, there's no reason not to be doing that against the earthquakes unless you've come up with a surefire plan that does not involve that number nine dropping back. Why would you not want to create that space in the middle of the back line? It's perfect. And the Rapids did do that well in this game. Mm -hmm. We have seen it too on the wing, teams that want to possess and use their wingers or outside backs. We've seen that switch where the winger checks back to the ball and then the outside back goes beyond. And it's so funny when the outside back and the winger check to the ball and then the outside back just leaves a huge space behind him for San Jose. I'm just thinking Nick Lima in particular, right? Because he's the first outside back I think of. He checks with the winger and then it's like there's this giant gap in their back line and the outside back for the opposing team can just run on having so much space. So, yeah, that... A juxtaposition of a checking run and a through run is very, very much on when you're playing San Jose. They make it interesting. San yeah. Jose makes Major League Soccer more interesting than it already is, and I do appreciate that about them. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. <laughs> I would agree with you on that. It's something to talk about. Okay, one thing. I'm going to do one tactical tidbit before we get out of here. Okay. This is from the Chicago Fire and the New England Revolutions game. On Sunday, the Revolution went 2-1 to one with some really fluky goals almost the first one was a defensive miscue from the fire back line and the second one was a shoss i don't know i don't know what the proper terminology is for a shot cross a cross that somehow ends up in the goal that was not intentional i say shot cross but i like shoss i like i like shoss shot cross is fine too it's until bunbury who scores and that is eventually the game winner um early on ish in the second half but my my tidbit here and it's less tactical and a little bit more of a, a gut thing the Fire have won one out of their last seven games, but I'm pretty sure they're a good soccer team right now under <laughs> Rafael Vicky. I'm pretty sure. I'm not I'm not betting the house. I'm not betting the farm on that. But the way the Fire play with Gaston Jimenez dropping dimes from central midfield as that number six, the center backs being aggressive in possession, Pineda and Calvo, and mistakes do come from that. I'm very aware of that. Aliceda has this really interesting young attacker who can drop in and play as part of a front two and drop or just play as almost a number 10 in a 4-2-3-1 Mm-hmm. That's That was kind of his role on Sunday. And then you have Madron, who just brings me joy playing in central midfield. The Fire have the pieces, and I think they're mm-hmm. starting to come together, If even though the results aren't coming right now. So I just wanted to get that out there so that maybe I'll look smart or really dumb in a month or two. I agree. I, I agree with you. And there's something about them that you have this, like watching them, I have this sense of when it clicks, 
it's really going to click. And it's going to be really fun to watch the Chicago Fire team. I do have to say, I think Jimenez played my favorite ball I've seen in a long, long time. And it, it comes off this combination that Chicago likes to pull numbers to the right side. And it's Frankowski, Seklish playing this two-man game in the channel where it doesn't matter who's inside, who's outside. And at this point, Frankowski is in that uh, half space and he just drops the ball back to Jimenez, who is always an outlet. It's either Jimenez or Aliceta or Madron. But when those two are on the channel, they always have some player to play back to who can then switch the point of attack. And in this moment, in the ninth minute against New England, it's Jimenez. And what that does is it sucks all the players of New England a little bit more over to their left and it leaves a gap for Navarro to fly. And this guy's a flyer, right? Mm -hmm. He can get up and down the wing. Yeah, as an outside back. And he is pushed all the way up. And Jimenez plays this like short, choppy swing of a ball that just dinks over the head of uh, Brandon Bay on the far side onto the foot of Navarro. Like, I do not understand how he played this ball so perfectly, but I wa- I probably had to rewind it a few times this morning and rewatch it because I was like, that was a beautiful ball. The second that you said you had a favorite pass or your favorite pass you or whatever it was, it was that one? I knew it was that one. And we'll find oh, it and we'll clip oh. it out because it's beautiful. It is so good. Can I, can I do one tactical tidbit on New England that I think was interesting? You have 60 seconds or less, Jordan. Okay, cool. Well, New England playing out of the back. They're playing in a four. It was lined up as a four, three, one, two, but I think it's a four, five, one. That's what I would call it. And so the two holding midfielders, they have Fagundes and Polster. And when they're building out, Fagundes on the right side is playing with Bunbury and Bai, and he gets the ball back. And what I find interesting is the movement of Polster on the far side. When they're building out of the right, Polster wants to come this little diagonal run through the central of midfield. And a lot of the times that holding mid is stays and is an outlet pass to then switch to the other side. But I actually think his run diagonally towards the right side into this huge space that Chicago was giving him was a really interesting run. And if they had the guts to play that seam and play the ball through the lines there, he could have been a good outlet for them to either play Gustavo Bo in front or switch the point of attack. But I just really liked the combination between those two players centrally. Boom. That was at 60 seconds. It was close. You weren't too really? far off. Yeah. Oh, okay. Coaches, players, incoming, outgoing transfers, in-game analysis. We covered the gambit today, Jordan. I don't know if that's an wow. expression, but it is now. We, we talked about a lot of stuff, and we'll be back again next week to do the same thing. Yeah, it's a cornucopia of an episode. Oh, Yep, I, love I love that, that. word it, whenever I can throw it in. Makes me think of Thanksgiving. And now I'm hungry, exactly. which all the more reason for us to get out of here. Jordan, thank you for talking with me. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. We truly appreciate you. And Jordan, we'll be back again in seven days. Oh, I know. We'll see you then. Thanks, Joe.